We are a little over halfway done with our Exodus series. Exodus could be 700, any series could be 700 sermons. Uh, there just, for us, comes this point of diminishing returns where you're like, this is our 900th. You feel like the Israelites in the desert. You're just like, are we ever going to get out of this series? So trying to do series that allow us to see the passage, see the movements, make sense of what's going on, while not just necessarily living in it forever, because God has given us all the Bible, and it's just good to read and to hear and to engage with. And so we're about halfway through Exodus. We're spending almost all our time in the first 20 chapters. Exodus has 40. Uh, but about the first 20 chapters is going to be about 17 or 18 of the 20 sermons. Uh, so then we do one discussion on the law. What does the law do? What purpose is it serving? And how do we as Christians recognize it? And then one on the tabernacle. There's a theme that you'll see throughout Scripture, starting at Genesis, ending in Revelation, of God dwelling with his people. That theme of God being with his people, pursuing them and, and, and having his presence be with them. That theme is throughout Scripture. And the tabernacle was kind of the next phase in salvation history of that movement since the people marred by sin were separated from God. Now God is back with his people at the end of Exodus, and that becomes really important for understanding how the nation's going to work. And then when God's Spirit leaves his people, essentially in judgment, they're taken off, and that changes, and the temple's rebuilt, but it's not the same. And then Jesus comes into the world, right? God being with his people. It's all about, for the Lord, uh, I use this phrase, uh, you know, it doesn't apply to him as well as it might apply to us, but the long game, you know that phrase, like, God wouldn't just go, I'm in, the, I'm in it for the long game. But you, you get what I mean, where you make decisions in life based upon not what's going to happen in the moment, but what might happen in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, anybody in this room who is saving for retirement is trying to play the long game. You know, then, like, your kids need braces, and you realize you're playing the short game after that. You're like, well, what is the penalty if I take that out? Um, so we're all trying to play. Like, that, that's maybe the longest game most people play, Parenting isn't even that long of a game. Like, you know, once they're about eight, we're doomed. So whatever, that, whatever happens after that, who knows? So, you know, parenting's a long game, though. Grandparenting, we could say that's a long game. Uh, maybe the job that you have is a, is a long game. And all that meaning, I keep doing things not for the immediate result, but for what's to come. Now, the problem with us is, is we, we can't really play the long game well. And by well, I mean enduringly. When I was, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, I made a time capsule in my backyard. I basically dug a hole in the ground. I put a pencil and a penny in the hole, and I covered it up. That was it. I didn't put it in anything. No bag, no box, no nothing. It was just dig a hole, pencil, penny. I'm going to find this in some time. Whatever. I don't even live in that house anymore. That was a long time ago. That was many houses ago. I'm very bad at playing this game, even when I think I am. I think I'm good at it. When I think I'm good, I'm just not. I'm not. I have a very difficult time making a decision now that will impact five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. I'd like to think I'm good. You'd like to think you're good. But in general, we aren't. We kind of forget. Maybe there's like one thing that you're holding on to. Maybe that's it. No, I just don't want my kids to hate me. 
So you make every decision so that they don't hate you or something like that. So very often there might be one compelling thing, maybe two. I can't hold one thing in my head, but if you can, great. Two things where you start to make decisions based upon that. And, and maybe you've read the book Atomic Habits. My, you know, Cordy, you've said this. My friend David has said this to me. You know, Every decision you make is a vote for the future person you want to be. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care if that future person's overweight. I'm going to have the french fries. Like, you know, like that's what you start to do. You just go, that's fine. I don't mind that future person being out of shape. At least he'll be happy, right? Like, so, so when we try to make these decisions about who we're trying to be, it's very hard for that to sustain. It's really hard for that to be enduring. Because I forget the decisions I was making a year ago for the person I'm supposed to be now. I hope I did it but I don't remember. But consider the Lord whose purposes haven't changed. You heard it read in Ephesians. Chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. What? What? To make a choice before the foundation of the earth that comes to pass in time and in space, in my life or in your life or in our church's life, I can't do that. You can't do that. To do something in, in history that then foreshadows something that's going to come 1,500 years later, and then after that, whenever the new heaven and the new earth come, to be able to do that? I can't do that. Some of you here today might even be skeptical about the Bible, maybe skeptical about God. You're not really sure if, if he can be trusted, I'll just say, if you start to read and see how the Lord is able to move through time and through space and through culture and through men and women and children to accomplish his purposes and that they don't deviate, when you start to see that, you can be doubtful or skeptical in lots of things, but the Lord might not be the one to doubt. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that? Because even when we play the long game, we lose track, we slow down, we forget. We can't do it very long. And yet here we are in the Exodus narrative. Like This is the whole reason we call this series God Saves. Because we have the parting of the Red Sea. Now that might be a story that even if you're not a Christian here today, you go, oh yeah, I know the parting of the Red Sea story. How can you not know the parting of the Red Sea story? Everyone knows it. Right? There's this army coming in. There are the Israelites. Moses hears from the Lord, he holds the staff out, the waters part, they go through on dry land. As the Egyptians come in, the waters come back over, Pharaoh and his armies are destroyed, and there they are on the other side. Probably heard that. But maybe what we don't realize is how that event mattered for what was to come. That, that that saving moment where God frees his people Israel from their slavery, once and for all, they're out of Egypt. When he does that, when he makes that move, the significance of that exodus for how the psalmist viewed life, for how Jesus spoke, for the expectation that even his people now have for what is to come. 
When I was in D group, uh, our, my D group leader sent a sermon by Tim Keller. And anytime you listen to a sermon by Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, uh, he's just smart and, and, and he's really good at reasoning. He's, he's pastored a long time. And there's a danger. I was actually talking about sermon prep with multiple friends this week. There's a real danger in listening to anyone you like before you prepare something, even if it was like a year ago, because it incepts you. You go, oh, that makes sense. Uh, but the idea is that he has a sermon, and he, he speaks about it way more accurately. This is not Tim Keller's sermon. Uh, but the ideas here you'll find people refer to throughout time because they're not new ideas. What we see here and what God is doing in this passage and how that passage moves and even how Jesus might speak of it, how the psalmist might speak of it, it's not, it's not new. But hopefully today what we're going to do is, is journey through a passage, but we're going to do it in a, in a unique way. And what I mean by that is we're not just going to look at, at the passage and lock it into that one time and that one space of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, but we're going to actually then go before it and go, well, how is this something that, how is this event kind of promised by what God had spoken previously? Then we're going to go forward and go, how does this event, how are they looking at this event backwards? How does Jesus use this event? And how will this idea of God saving his people and bringing them to a new place, how will this then still be worked out? the promise of restoration and being brought into a new heaven and a new earth. And so we're going to use kind of a, a telescopic view, kind of moving through salvation history to look at this moment and see the reverberations of this moment through history and how that moment was a promise, a part of a promise that God had made to his people to save and sustain them. It's a longer passage today, Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 starting verse 17, all the way through 1431. I'll read it for us. You can listen, you can follow behind, however you would choose to do that. But remember where they are. They're now, they've now left the land, in a sense, they've left their land, Goshen. They're now fleeing. And this is where we are. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, which would have brought them in a quicker route, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, maybe they'll battle and want to do that. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle in kind of their regiments. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Atom and on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Remember what it was. This is that the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That they, God was leading his people, and when, the, when it moved, they'd move, and when it stayed, they stayed. Then, as God's leading them, the Lord said to Moses, 14.1, Tell the people of Israel to turn back 
So now turn around, turn back, and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. He'll think they're lost. Right? You ever seen the same car circling the block? And you're like, they don't know where they're going. That's, what, that's, the, that's the whole goal. You're going to turn around. You're going to camp out. You're going to be, no, I know where you're going. Pharaoh won't. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea, by Pihahiroth, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared Greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They don't see any hope. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Notice the phrase, salvation of the Lord. Then that could be deliverance of the Lord. See it, that he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Stop grumbling. Just let it happen. We don't need your complaints. Just watch. It's not like this, you know, uh, the Lord leadeth me by still waters kind of statement. He's really just going, well, you shut up and let God do what God said he was going to do. You don't even have to do anything. Just watch. I mean, that's, like, that's what he's saying. Will you stop, please, and watch? I think sometimes we would be silent, like, oh, yeah, there's still a small voice of God. No. Like, they're angry. So he's like, just, just be quiet. Watch what will happen. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? And there Moses is being seen as a representative of the people. So the Lord's speaking to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, which is a demonstration of power and dependence on the Lord. Stretch your hand over the sea and divide it. 
that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Sometimes we don't like the word I in the Bible. That's a fine I. I will get glory. I will harden his heart. I will do this. I got it. I got it. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And this is similar to the burning bush incident, isn't it? Where there's like the angel of the Lord appeared, but a voice appeared, and now we have a pillar of cl- you know, we have a cloud and fire. The angel of God was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with one coming near the other, without one coming near the other all night. So you see what the Lord is doing as He is putting protection between the Israelites and the Egyptians so the Egyptians cannot descend upon them. He is bringing that kind of confusion. I can't enter into that space. And so though they were led here, now he's moving behind. The Egyptians are here, cloud here, Israelites here. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. The waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud. And in the morning, watch, I'm sorry. In the morning, watch the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. Clogging their chariot wheels, maybe breaking their wheels so they can't get where they need to go, right? So now you just see them kind of moving around and their horse is moving and it's going in the wrong direction. They drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now listen to this summary. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Will you pray with me? Father, Thank you for this passage. 
I pray, we pray is that as we continue through it, you would be gracious to us in our understanding and help us realize your mighty hand and the way that you save. Teach us, God, by your grace, for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was making the slides for this, I was texting my friends. I said, you got a 94-slide sermon presentation, and I'm sorry about that. It's mainly just that passage. That's a lot of it. That passage is a lot of verses, and we break it up so that those of you watching at home don't have verses going all the way up to my face. So we're trying to keep it down at the bottom. So that's one of the reasons, but it's just a lot. It's a lot. So what we have today in this passage are a few things. We're first going to look at the immediate context, the Old Testament context, the salvation history in New Testament, and then from that kind of move into still the future. Now, the book of Exodus is unique for us as both Bible interpreters, Bible students, because what happens in the Exodus paves the way for how the people are going to operate with God in the Old Testament, right? The law that comes in the end, the tabernacle, their understanding of worship. But then before that, their deliverance from Egypt a part of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The parting of the Red Sea is spoken of in the Psalms. You have this statement about bringing up the bones from Egypt to the land. They brought Joseph's bones with him. All of that is because of the promise that God had made to his people. Now remember this idea of the long game? What we're going to see here is that God's the only one that can play the long game right. He's the only one that can actually make these moves work throughout time. Remember, Abraham, he was on the scene, when people would say around uh, 2166, I think, we'll say 2150, just round it, B.C. This, 1446, you can say 1450 B.C. if you want to do it that way. 400 years passed while they're in Egypt, right? The 400 years from the end of Genesis into Exodus, the pharaohs who don't know Moses, generation after generation after generation after generation. I'm sorry, Pharaoh don't know, doesn't know uh, Joseph, but all the generations of people who come, and they, they don't have this fulfilled hope, this thing that had been spoken to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They don't have it. So we're going to start with just the immediate context. The passage that we just read, what is, what's happening there? God saves his chosen people from their slavery in Egypt. That's what happens. Pharaoh sends them out. God directs them on their journey. They're led by the fire or by the cloud. And he even directs them in such a way they look confused. In fact, if you look at the map behind me, you'll see, I, I kind of circled it in red. Some people would think it's like this, that, that little peninsula there where they cross. But if you look at the circle spot, that's where a lot of people think the crossing actually happened in that space there. Uh, but you, if you actually, you have to have your super good spectacles on to see all this because this was a book. It's just now a page. Uh, but there's a lot of question marks on like, is this the place? Is this the place? Is this the place? Is this the place? Uh, but what you'll see is like, you see him kind of moving around. The phrase would be a circuitous route, right? Like, whoop, right? Like, what are you doing? And so as you try to follow that arrow right in that circle, well, what's happening is the Lord is directing them. But man, does he make them look silly. You're like, wait a minute. Weren't we just here? 
Like, no, those are your footprints. Remember we were drawn in the mud yesterday? Like we just passed it again. The Lord is leading them, but the way in which he is leading them is making Pharaoh feel emboldened. Oh, this nation, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's happening. They're lost. I bet right now we could just go get them and bring them back. They wouldn't even care. It's one of those things where you have this good idea. Now, remember, promised land, where is that? Like, that's going. You still got to go up into the right there. Like, you see Gaza at the very top. You still got to keep going. They have a journey ahead of them. They don't want to go by the Philistines, which are the coastal people, right? You don't just kind of cut up north of the Philistines because the Philistines might wage war with you, and now you're like, well, forget it. The Egyptians have had no battles to fight. I'm sorry, the Israelites, no battles to fight. They've They've been an enslaved people. They're not making weapons of war. You think the Egyptians would let them build an army? No. So the Lord's trying to be gracious. I'm going to go ahead and lead them away from the Philistines because they might just give up right away. I remember one time my little brother had decided to run away from home. And I saw him at the end of our driveway sitting. And he had a bag. And in that bag was an oatmeal cream pie. And like one other thing. It's kind of like, well, how far do you think you're going, buddy? Clearly you hadn't thought this through. So you understand why the Lord would go, well, I don't want to give them an experience that would immediately make them turn around. But I will give them an experience that will make Pharaoh think that they don't know what they're doing. So Pharaoh sends them out. God directs them on their journey. Pharaoh comes after them and they fear. But then what happens? God directs Moses as this mediator to bring deliverance through the sea. As the Egyptians come in after them, the waters close over, and again, as you read at the end of the chapter, 14, 30, and 31, they're saved. So God saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. That's immediately what is going on. That God is saving his chosen people from the slavery in Egypt. He's fulfilling something that was to be. But that's not all that's going on. That's not all that's going on. There's more going on than just that event happening. This is also what's going on. God was saving his chosen people from their slavery to continue the promise that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So it wasn't just like he woke up one day and went, you know what, I'm feeling like saving the Israelites. Let's just do that. No, you, go, you have to go back in time now to Abraham. Remember Genesis 12, he makes a promise that he calls him out of his family's paganism and idolatry, which is how salvation works. Right? You're going this way, God's like, come this way. You're like, oh, okay, right? And you just kind of move on along with it. You're not even always sure what you're doing, but that's what happens. So in the same way that the, the, the Lord has done this in us, he did this for Abraham. He goes, you, you're going this way now. So he gives this promise, and he promises this land. He says, I will, I will make you a nation. I will make you a nation. I think sometimes we forget that like, this, is, this is built into an Israelite's hope. It's like a, a nation, a place. You're going to give us a place to be. And a place where nations will be able to hear about you. 
And we will be a blessing to that world. So there's the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. We had referred to this even recently in Genesis 15 of God saying, you'll die at a good age, Abraham. Your people will be enslaved for 400 years, but I will bring them out. I will bring them out. So there's a promise in Genesis 15. And again, we're centuries before the actual event of bringing them out. And remember, back at the beginning, this is like week one or two of this series, but look at Exodus 2, 24 and 25. The people cry out to the Lord. Now listen to what happens. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that might seem like a small thing to you, but it isn't. This is not a small thing at all. Why? Because God isn't just kind of waking up and going, oh, yeah, okay, well, I'll care for these people now. He hears them, and he identifies with the promise that he's already made, with a plan that has been predetermined. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we see that the book of Exodus is a book about promises being fulfilled, or at least in part, because you can't have a land if you're an enslaved people. So you have to get out of the land that you're enslaved in to get to the land that God has promised you. Centuries go by. Centuries go by. They cry out, God hears them, and he remembers the promise he made. Now Joseph was a prominent character in Egypt at the end of Genesis. But then you have in 1319, this I comment about the bones. That Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry my bones with you from here. Well, let's look at. The end of Genesis. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So we have Joseph making a promise, or asking his sons to make him a promise, that he will be buried in the land God had promised to bring them. So Joseph's bones sit for hundreds of years so that they can be brought into the land. That is no small detail. I have heard the horror stories of people in like their family members' ashes and them losing them or misplacing them or vacuuming them up. Like, like, like you go, oh no. So to be able to hold on to someone's bones for centuries, <laughs> that's impressive. And they do it because of a hope of a land that God had said he would give to them. In fact, it isn't until Joshua that we get to see this part continued. Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So promise in Genesis 50, brought out in Exodus 13, 
buried in Joshua 24, spanning centuries. Because what God is doing, even in the parting of the Red Sea and the saving of his people from their slavery in Egypt, is still fulfilling the promise that he had made. He would give his people a place. He would be with them, that they would bless the world. So there's an event there, and that's significant for us. So now we have the Israelites. Now at this point in time, just you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go back to chronology with me. At this point in time, they have crossed the sea. They have not been punished and punished to wander for 40 years. So the expectation at this time is that they go and they're given the law and they're brought into the land. But because of their grumbling and their disobedience, the generation that's brought out doesn't make it into the land. Joshua brings the next generation in. But that wasn't the original Israelite expectation. They were like, hey, God's going to save us and we're going to wander in the desert. Because had they known that was the deal... They probably would have stayed in Egypt. And you can even hear this, like next week when we read some of their grumblings, you hear this in their grumblings. Why did you bring us out here? It would have been so much better to have just stayed in Egypt. At least we had food there and houses and water. Why did you do this? And so there's just this built-in frustration from the beginning. But it is their grumbling and disobedience, specifically when they scout out the land, makes them go, I don't think God can fulfill his promise. I don't think he can do this. So that's the reason that the, the nation doesn't, that generation doesn't get in. And then Moses disobeys by, he's supposed to speak to a rock. Happens in two occasions. One, he hits it. One, he's supposed to speak to it. He doesn't speak to it. And so in his disobedience, he can't get into the land either. We're going to see something pretty cool in a second, though, so hold on to that idea of Moses not getting into the land because it's about to get pretty neat. But in the salvation history, we're going to move to the New Testament context, we can see this, that God delivers Israel from bondage, and that prefigures Christ's deliverance of his people from their sin. Remember last week, we spoke about it last week, we speak about it a lot, is that when we go to the table as a church family and we take communion, we are taking elements that Christ has said, this is my body, this is my blood. But they were elements that the nation took year after year after year to remember God saving them out of Egypt. And yet when Jesus is with his disciples, what does he do? But he takes those elements... And he says, this is my body, this is my blood, broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And so we see that God's deliverance of the people there in that moment prefigures what Christ is to do for us. A few ideas here. First, Jesus is the blessing promised to Abraham through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Galatians 3 puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that, if you're in your paper Bibles, you can circle it, if not, circle it later, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham. Paul did not forget it. He wasn't sitting there in the first century going, what could I make up here? No, so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham, Genesis 12 
might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now we have to be careful here. Like I, I, we, we love to always just immediately identify ourselves just with the Israelite crossing through the sea. And I don't know if that always helps. But we certainly should be able to identify <laughs> with a person who is freed from their slavery and their sin by a mediator, Jesus, so that we can be brought into a new and better relationship. And so what God is doing here is, has, has meaning even as we see the work of Jesus and the salvation that we receive through him. And when we go to the table, we are remembering his work for us. We don't remember being brought through the sea. We remember him dying for our sins. We remember his body being broken and his blood being shed for, for us. For us. When I say it prefigures uh, Jesus' work to save sinners, I, I also mean this, that even the New Testament reveals Jesus as a better Moses actually reveals him as somebody better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers. There's a New Testament book written to Jewish believers who were concerned about leaving their faith. And so it's rich with Old Testament imagery to try and help them realize that Jesus is better than anything that they would be going back to. Right? Back then, better than the law, better than Moses, better than angels. Anything that you thought was good back there, I promise Jesus is better. With relation to Moses, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now listen to what he says. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's one thing to like the house. It's another thing to marvel at the builder. Jesus has more glory. You marvel at the architect. Who built this? Who planned this? Who did this? Are you telling me the God of Genesis 12 is the God of Exodus 14, who is the God of Galatians 3, and the one spoken of in Hebrews 3? This is the same person? It's the same God. You marvel. Because no one can architect this. You can't build this. You can't make this unless you are above it. We are not above it. We're in it. We're part of it. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now listen to this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was faithful as a servant, doing what God had called him into. Christ was faithful as a son. So we see this 
Exodus event is significant for not just the nation, but significant for the church. Because in it we see what Jesus, who is a better Moses, has done for us. To save us, to deliver us, to bring us. Now I said Moses was coming back. This is pretty cool. I think even if you're not a Bible nerd, you're going to like this. So anybody who doesn't consider themselves a Bible nerd, bring it on. Because it's about to get pretty neat. The transfiguration, have you heard of this story? Transfiguration, so the transfiguration is where Jesus brings some of his disciples up on a mountain and he is changed. And he is changed into something that they had never seen before. Whiter than any clothes could be bleached. They've never seen it. Peter, James, and John's are there. Peter doesn't know what to do, so he's like, let's build houses and let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles just right here because I don't know what to do. And many people, when they don't know what to do, just start talking. So Peter just starts talking. I'm gonna stumble into a good statement. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story of the transfiguration, but Luke tells you what they talked about. That's pretty interesting. And here's what's cool. If you know who's with Jesus at the transfiguration, he has Moses and Elijah. Who didn't make it into the land? Moses. And yet, who is there in the land with Jesus speaking about things to come? Transfiguration. Let's look at this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took him, Peter, John, and James, and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, I want you just to circle that word, departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His departure. Do you know what that word is? You just were looking like at the Greek. Luke actually uses this word. I don't think it's a mistake. Luke uses the word exodus. Exodus. Which is in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's what the book's called. He was speaking with them about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting. Interesting that Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah before his death, burial, and resurrection about what he was about to accomplish. And Luke calls it his exodus, his departure. Huh. The reason I don't think this is a mistake, though, you can find the word exodus to mean departure. It's not in the New Testament a lot, but you can find it. The reason I don't think this was a mistake is because if Luke was proud of anything, anything. It was the tiresome research that he did to present a true and accurate testimony. Of not, it was Luke and Acts. It was both. Of Jesus coming into this world, the hope of the Messiah, the anticipation of a restoration of the land, his death, burial, resurrection. You get into Acts and what do you see but the gospel going to the Gentiles. Luke Acts kind of paints this whole movement of anticipation of the Messiah. You have Anna from the tribe of Asher. She shows up in Luke. Who, and people are waiting for the restoration of Israel. You have Acts chapter 1 where they're going, Jesus, is this now the time that you're going to restore the nation? You're going to restore us now? And he goes, no, don't worry about that. You're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. So 
Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah about his departure, his exodus, the bringing of the people from their sin into life with him. But here's the great thing about being people who followed Jesus, a resurrected Lord, is that he's not done. It is one thing, it is one thing for you and for me to be really caught up in what, is, what has happened. But so much of what's happening in Acts and beyond is about what will happen. You have people mad at the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts because he is on trial for the hope of the resurrection. He is speaking about the life that is to come. He is speaking about salvation found in Jesus and how everybody can live with God forever. So while he proclaims a historical event and the need to know, worship, and believe in a resurrected Lord Jesus for your sins, he also writes with such hope about what will be. And so you see that how God is moving his people He's not done. He's not done. This is why this event. Now you can't do this with any part of Scripture. Because not any part of Scripture has this much weight to it. We talked about this last week. Like last week, this week, next week. There's going to be a a few weeks run where what happens becomes saturated with meaning. Not just for a moment, but for as long as we exist. And so I think it's important for us to remember that God's not done in fact, Daryl Bach, who's really, I mean, some people are really smart, like super smart. I'm not one of them. Dr. Bach is. And his name is Dr. Bach, which is just cool. Kind of like Dr. Spock, but not. But he will even say that this idea of Exodus is also about his return. Look at how he's dressed. You don't see him like this at his resurrection. This is about, this is about what's still going to happen. He's not done. Moses and Elijah are there in glory. What's interesting to me is that the author, right, Luke, Matthew, Mark, they all knew who it was. They had never seen Moses or Elijah. What are they going to do? It could have just been Jesus talking to two dudes, but yet they were sure it was Moses and Elijah. So for a second, let's just look at what we're awaiting because there's still a place God's going to bring us. We're awaiting a return. Look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is your past tense. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, what it's currently doing, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, future. Waiting for our blessed hope. That's what we're waiting for. So we're currently waiting, but there's still something coming. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So even as he's writing there in in Titus, the grace has appeared, we are saved, it's changing us now while we wait for a glorious return. 
Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's returning. You can almost, you can hear echoes of Moses' frustrated statement. Just be silent. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Wait and see what God will do. Not only that, a return, there's a restoration of a nation. Romans 11, 25 and 26 reads like this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, it's the church time, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we're in this moment in salvation history where Gentiles are carrying the gospel mantle more. Not exclusively, more. But not always. There's an until there in Romans eleven twenty five. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So there's still, even as Luke 1 and 2 have this hope of a land and a, a promise, they're still waiting for God to bring the full expression of this promise. And then Revelation 21. Look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Dinner time. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So let's just think about this for a second. God created a world. In that world, he put man. Man sinned. God called a man and his family from their idolatry and said, I will make you a nation. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, we are working out, like a roller coaster, how that begins to look. However, however, we end in Egypt, but we don't have a land. We don't even really see how the promise is going to be fulfilled. We do start to have a family. That's good. Family's showing up. All right, I like that. Then we get into Exodus. We have a people in slavery. Well, that was spoken of in Genesis 15. There will be in a land that's not theirs, but God will bring them out. And so what do we have? God raises up a deliverer in Moses. There are the plagues that come on the land of Egypt. They are sent out of the land. Egypt follows after. They are there at the sea. The waters are parted. They bring, they're brought through. And those who had held them captive now hold nothing over them. And again, psalmists praise God for this. If you're in a community group and you're discussing that this week, there's a couple of references to the psalms where they just speak of the parting of the sea and what it did and the deliverance from Egypt. This became, this moment, this salvation moment for the nation became a way that they annually celebrated the goodness of God in their midst. 
And yet as you follow the history of the nation, if you're in our reading plan right now, then you realize that we are in the divided kingdom, the north and the south. We're getting pretty close to the northern kingdom being taken away by Assyria. We'll go a little longer, and then we're going to see the southern kingdom taken away by Babylon. There'll be a return, but it is nothing like the Genesis 12 promise that you read. A wimpy and desolated land with a rebuilt temple that's nothing like, people are weeping that it's not like it used to be. Then we have 400 years of silence and a light dawns. And really, for the bulk of his life, the Son of God lives in obscurity. Lives in obscurity. And he keeps teaching about who he is, and then there he is the night before his death with his disciples, and they're remembering what? The Exodus. The salvation, Exodus 14, 30 and 31, that God made for his people, the deliverance that he gave them. And what does he say there? I'm your deliverer. My body's broken, my blood is shed. So remember me. And now what do we have for us weekly? But churches every week throughout the world remember God saving his people bringing them from their sins to life with him. And we, as a redeemed people, still wait and look for the return of that Savior in dazzling white to make right everything that is wrong. We long and we look for that. Because what happened, what God prefigures even in that moment, has not fully been done yet as we wait to be brought into a land and live with our God free from enemies, Free from grumbling, free from sin, free from frustration, free from dissension, free from heartlessness, free from adultery, free from pornography, free from pain, free from cancer, free. We look for that. It is not done. So we wait and we hope.